Welcome to the Angel Investors Network podcast. Angel Investors Network is the first national angel group founded online in 1997, dedicated to perpetuating free enterprise, capitalism, and supporting the American dream. In addition, Angel Investors Network is the organization behind the powerful Mastermind Investment Club, dedicated to harnessing the philosophy of a mastermind to increase success and their investment portfolio. Jeff Barnes is the COO and CMO at Angel Investors Network. Jeff is a two-time international best-selling author who helps entrepreneurs and leaders start, scale, and exit their businesses while creating freedom and autonomy along the way. On the podcast, Jeff brings together the most successful privately held companies in America to share with you how they grow their businesses and how you can too. And now, here's your host, Jeff Barnes. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jeff Barnes with Angel Investors Network here today for the Angel Investors Network podcast. And I have an incredible guest here for you today. Really excited about this. We're going to be bringing to you Mr. Marty Schultz. Now, Marty Schultz is a mentor, speaker, and an angel investor. Has started several companies over his career. Marty mentors entrepreneurs and presents at startups and venture capital conferences on how to bootstrap and grow software startups. So I'm really excited about that because I love the, the tech space. I'm really big into technology and helping um, tech companies get off the ground. His presentations include the hidden secrets of raising money, why bootstrapping is, be is a better idea, and how my hobby, Blindfold Games, has brightened the lives of thousands. He's the founder of Blindfold Games and a, an app development company that builds accessible games for the visually impaired community. The company has released over 80 games that promote learning through gamification. Mr. Schultz was a founder of McGruff Safeguard, a partnership with the National Crime Prevention Council and McGruff that monitor your kids' potentially dangerous online activity. So we'll probably dive into that a lot. And the service alerted you to dangerous behavior such as internet predators, sexual abuse, drug use, or criminal activity, and provided helpful advice about online parenting issues. Mr. Schultz was a co-founder of eSped, an educational SASC focusing on school districts providing services for special needs students. He was the founder and president of Omtool, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a company that provided enterprise messaging mess systems to Fortune 500 companies. He holds the certificate from Harvard Business School, owner, president program, and earned a BS and MS from Carnegie Mellon. So that's, that's a lot of accomplishments over the years. Marty, I'm really looking forward to diving into this interview. Thank you very much for joining us here and welcome. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. You know, one of the things I start off a lot of my uh, talks with is saying that Raising money for your company doesn't guarantee success, and raising money may actually guarantee failure. The only time you want to raise money is when you don't actually need it. Now, I built my career by coming up with an idea, turning that idea into a profitable business, and then selling it. I've done this five times. And I found that instead of young entrepreneurs trying to raise money, they really need to look at their own skills. I mean, if they're creative, if they're passionate, and they're persistent, they already have everything they need to succeed. And I've used that to start all my different ventures. Love it. That, that's absolutely right. You know, it, when you need money is the last time to be looking for it, right? <laughs> so if you don't need it, that's when the money starts pouring in and people love to give it to you and they love to offer you all the, all the advice in the world, right? But when you, when you really need it, that's the last time you want to start looking for it, right? What's amazing about it is all the things that a venture capitalist or an angel investor will ask you to go through to prove that your business is really viable are the same, same things you're going to have to go through anyway to uh, bootstrap the company. So yeah. if you're going to have to go through all those proof points to prove it to people who may be giving you 50000 or half a million or a million, if you have to go through this anyway, 
go through them on your own dollar, maintain control of your organization, and then once you've proven that for every dollar in, you can get a dollar fifty out. That's when you look for money. You know that I'm so glad you brought that up, Marty, because at Angel Investors Network, we get people just coming to us all the time, just out of the woodworks, asking for money or can you help us with with raising money and things like that. And I want to kind of dive into that a little bit because one of the things that I ask people is how much have you personally invested in your own company? Now, you have a lot of experience in that. So can you tell me a little bit about some of your experiences in the past and how you've done that, how you bootstrapped and actually invested your own personal time and resources into those companies and what you learned out of that process and where it got you? Well, the very first software company I started was back in the early uh, 1980s. And we saw that there were a lot of uh, very fast microcomputers coming out of California, out of Silicon Valley, but there was no software for that. Now, on the East Coast, there were a lot of computer manufacturers who were making these expensive computers that had a lot of great software apps. So we thought to ourselves, wouldn't it be a really cool idea if we could create a converter that would move all those great software apps to the new cheap computers? So my partner and I thought this would be a great idea. Let's go do it. Now, we had no idea how to turn an idea into a business, but we said, this idea is so revolutionary, let's just figure out how to do it on the, on the fly. That's what we did. We came up with a converter, it took us about six months to build this while we were working at other jobs, ended up finishing and then realized we had to quit our jobs, make no money, live off of credit cards, and then try to start selling it to people. And we thought, okay, we're gonna tell all these computer resellers who would use our product to take their great software and put it on these new cheap computers and then sell it to their clients, people like doctors and accountants. And we thought, if we do everything right, we're gonna revolutionize the world. In today's terms, you call that disruptive. We're gonna change it so that suddenly there's thousands of great software apps for all these new cheap computers. So we went ahead and did it and told the world, well, you know what we found out? No one cared. <laughs> we found out is it doesn't matter how disruptive you think your idea is or how much you're, you're going to change the world. Companies only care if you're solving a pain or helping them make more money. Yeah. We changed our pitch to these resellers to buy our converter and say, hey, with our product, you'll make more money. It worked. They started to buy our product. Well, we quickly learned that simply selling your product to somebody is not enough. You actually have to collect money. Now, we have no idea how to do any of that. So we'd call people up and say, hey, did you get the invoice? And, and this was like 30 years ago, I typed out the invoice on a typewriter. Sure. <laughs> they say, no, we didn't get the invoice. I call back a week later, I sent the invoice. They say, we got the invoice and it's scheduled for payment. I didn't realize that was just another excuse. <laughs> call back a week later, they said, okay, well, it's scheduled for payment, but we're not gonna release the funds because we found a bug in the product you sold us and you have to fix that bug. Oh, wow. Every time we addressed their issue, they found another excuse not to pay. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know this is how business operates. So at that point I realized, okay, I don't know, I can't basically run this business and call everybody to collect money because I have to sell this stuff and support the customers. So I hired someone to handle accounts receivable and collections. Well, that worked they start paying and money starts coming in and, and the business starts to grow. But I learned something really important from that as a lesson, which is if you don't do the job yourself first, you have no idea how to hire the right people, how to evaluate the performance and how to motivate them. Yeah. And in every step in every company I've built, I had to learn how to do all the tasks, 
do it well, and then figure out who to hire, how to keep them motivated, and then how to make sure that they stayed on track. So yeah, when absolutely. the first company that I worked at for eight years, uh, probably put in 12 hours a day, seven days a week, ended up selling it for 20 or $30,000 worth of, of completely useless penny stock. <laughs> and I looked at how much I made after that venture of investing eight years of my life. I would have made more money at McDonald's. Sure. So, but, but the yeah. skills and the expertise you gained were, were invaluable or priceless, right? Oh, I learned more than anyone would learn coming out of a Harvard MBA program. And I learned how to build a company so that the next time I did it, I would be even more efficient at it. And I know where all the, the traps were. So at least if I'm going to make a mistake, they were new mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. So you said some really important things there that I, I want to dive into a little bit. Uh, the first part is I, I bootstrapped and I used my credit cards. And that just tell me how excited you were about doing that. Well... You know, when you're 28, I was 28 when I started my first company and, and credit at that point was still this magical stuff where money would kind of fall out of the air and, and you realize you don't have to pay it back right away. So like everybody else, I built up a lot of credit card debt and I figured, okay, if this thing fails, I can go back to my regular job and pay off the debt. And it, we were lucky enough that after a year and a half of not having any salary and living on the credit cards that we finally started making some sales. So yeah. we were able to get the debt down. Um, but if you're not willing to risk your own time and your own money in your venture, no one else is going to do it. Isn't that so true? It's so true. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing that you said, I mean, I, I can tell you, I've been there too, and it's the scariest thing that you do when you're like, okay, I'm going to leave the comfort of a regular J-O-B and that standardized paycheck that comes in every 14 days or so to all of a sudden, I don't know when I'm going to get my next dollar in, but at least I got some credit, right? Um, that, that's not a really fun situation to be in, but you got to make that leap at some point. Um, the, the other thing that you said, which I found really, it, it seems to me missing the mark with a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, and I've, I've been a mentor of entrepreneurs for a long time, especially in the, the tech space. And they seem to think that at the end of the day, all they have to do is just raise money, right? And they're just going to keep getting money and people are going to keep getting, sending them money and sending them checks. And they're going to be able to survive. But what you said is you actually have to go out and sell something. Can you talk to me about how important that process and that learning curve is? Because somebody who has maybe that engineering side or that software background, they don't really know how to sell. So can you talk about why that was so important and how you went about that? Well, I didn't know how to sell either. I had the same engineering background as, you, as you're describing some of these uh, people that you've been mentoring. And I realized that no one's going to sell this for me. Not only didn't I have the money to hire someone to sell for me, thankfully, anyone I would have hired probably would have messed up because if a CEO, if a founder of a company can't convince other people to buy their product, there is no way someone's going to buy it. Okay, You have to be the greatest spokesperson for your company. Now, when you're raising money, you are selling. But if you don't have enough of a story to back up what you're saying with truth, like, hey, my product is important for the following reason. And there are only two reasons why products can be important for people to invest money in. Either you're solving a pain and you can compute how much pain that is worth, or you're helping another entity make more money than they would otherwise make without your product. And you can also compute how much that's worth. And from there, you can build a company. Now, there are a lot of companies out there that think they're going to be the next half billion dollar or billion dollar venture. Um, and everyone's going to jump on, on their bandwagon and all they need to do is collect eyeballs and sooner or later they'll figure out how to monetize it. Nobody does that. Right. Nobody will invest in that because it's too risky. If you think about how a venture capitalist looks at the world, they know out of the 20 ventures they're going to invest in, 19 of them are going to fail. 
-hmm. One of them may be very successful, which makes up for all the other mistakes. Now you flip the flip to the other side of the table. That means if a VC is investing in you, you have a 95% chance that you're going to fail. That either you're going to fail when you run out of cash because they're not going to give you a second round, or you're going to fail because you become a zombie company, good enough to keep going, but certainly not saleable, which means there'll never be an exit. Right. Um, if you add on to that, it's going to take you at least six months to raise money, and all the steps you have to do to raising money is hard. And I watched a presentation recently at a conference where they talked about Gust launch. I'm sure some of your listeners have, are aware of Gust. Mm -hmm. Well, there are over 75,000 companies registered on the internet. Uh, I mean, 75,000 companies registered on Gust doing something on the internet. Now, if a VC is going to invest in you, they're looking for a half billion dollar company, a company that's going to eventually grow to half billion dollars. So even if you're starting off getting just $500,000 from someone, you're going to go through enough rounds that the final exit is at somewhere between around a half billion, which is what Facebook was worth about three years after they got started. So if you're not on track for half a billion, you're not going to get there. Now, do you think there are really 75,000 companies who are registered on Gus that are going to be worth half a billion dollars in a few years? Probably not. Maybe, you know, 5,000, maybe a thousand of these ideas will turn into a half billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. so that means that for every idea that's out there, there's probably 75 other people who thought of the same thing you thought of. And only one or two of those people will get funded. Right. So you have so much working against you. Um, you have to be a half billion dollar company. You're going to spend six months of your life to probably not raise money. And the worst part of all this is if you do raise money, you're now an employee working for somebody else. Yep. If you disagree with the VC's uh, ideas, you'll probably be outvoted. And just like a regular job, if you mess up, you'll be fired. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely true. You know, we've seen that happen time and time again. And it's, it's kind of unnerving when the visionary, the founder, the creator of the company gets ousted. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We understand that that's, that's a business decision. But, you know, to think that all you have to do is go out there and raise money and then your dream of becoming an entrepreneur who has this incredible company come, is going to come true. It, it's kind of like a pie in the sky, right? Like such a small percentage of people actually do that. And that's why, you know, I love the angel investors path of, you know, we'll give you some money, but we're not going to take total ownership and control of your company, right? We're going to really help you to get the money you need to grow your company, but we have to be very strategic in how we do that. Now, before we go on to how you were strategic in it, um, you said one other thing that I really want to dive into because when I first started in business, you know, I, my background is U.S. Navy nuclear mechanic on a submarine. So I had zero business experience when I left the Navy. Um, I just thought I, I knew I wanted to go into business and I didn't understand this concept of raising money and getting venture capital money and why you'd want to do that. And I lived in the Bay Area, so it was all around me. And I just kept thinking, well, if I have something that's good enough to sell, can't I just take the profits from that and follow that back into marketing and keep selling and keep doing that, right? But you brought up something really important, which is I did that. I actually sold stuff. I actually sent out invoices and people wanted my stuff, but for some reason the money didn't come in. Can you talk a little bit about you know, that business world of you know, 30, 60, 90 day <laughs> accounts receivable financing and how that works and how that really impacted your decision to how you, how you grew your company? So that, that gets me to another story that, that I like to talk about, which is when my partner and I created that first converter company, we realized that our product was so revolutionary and disruptive, we wanted to charge a lot of money for it. So we figured, okay, we'll charge $5,000 for 
for this converter that's really going to revolutionize the world and then $50 for each computer sold that use our converter. And we put together a spreadsheet like everybody else does. And we said, oh, in a few years, we'll be millionaires. This is great. I mean, back in the early 80s. Then we run the business and we realize, oh, the realities of running a business got in the way of some really good spreadsheet projections, which it always does. Okay. You have to, your product has to be perfect and your customer service has to be perfect for people to actually pay for what they ordered. Otherwise, they'll just basically send it back. They're, they're under no obligation. If you don't talk to people ahead of time who are potential purchasers of your product, then you're going to get nowhere. The mistake I made in my first company was I didn't really run this idea by anyone. I just thought sitting in my white tower that this is a great idea. Every company I did after that I would come up with an idea and then I'd run it by dozens of people. And if you talk to enough people, you'll end up with people telling you what they really need you to build. And you'll end up with a roadmap for people who will actually buy the product. And you'll have an initial set of customers in there and they'll track you along the way. You might find some of these people will finance you because they like the idea. They like that you're listening to them and they'll make it easy and they'll introduce you to other people whose pain you can also solve. If you don't do that, then you're gonna end up going down a path where nobody wants what you're doing. Now in every company I've created, what we started out with is not what we ended up, ended up making the company successful. Inevitably, we'll pivot along the way. In every company, we did some major pivots. So you have to have enough of awareness to know, am I failing, and enough awareness to know, okay, is it possible to pivot? In some cases, you know, I would put three months into a venture and realize, okay, this is going nowhere, even though everyone said it was important, they're simply not spending the money. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ones who are market leaders who said this would really change their business, they're not even putting forth the effort to work with it. In others, you find you put a product out there and then there's another, another usage for it. A classic example that I think of often is back in the early 90s, early 90s, no, no, uh, no early 2000s, instant messaging was all the rage. It's like mm -hmm. people were using instant messaging back then the same way we use texting today. And salespeople were sending out invoices, making commitments over instant messaging. And unlike with email, there was no paper trail. There was no computer trail. Once a message was sent, all evidence of that message is gone. Yeah. Well, that was causing problems because if a company doesn't know what their people are representing on their behalf, who knows what can happen? So we said, let's create a computer trail for instant messaging. Talked to a bunch of companies and said, it's a great idea. We build the product, we start marketing it, and we figured, okay, this is really gonna revolutionize things. We're gonna solve workplace bullying. We're gonna solve sexual harassment over instant messaging. We're gonna put an end to the fraud that's happening. Well, we put out there, and then we realized it was a complete and total failure. Hmm. Nobody wanted it. It taught me a lesson that said, if you're selling a fire extinguisher, the only people who want a fire extinguisher are people who already had fires. In this case, if a company didn't have a problem that needed a paper, a computer trail, they didn't care about monitoring the instant messaging. Mm -hmm. Just as we were about to shut down this company, I noticed a sudden spike in downloads. So I called up some of these customers and said, what's going on? Why are you downloading this very complex IT type of software? And these tech savvy parents said, we're using your software to monitor our teenagers' online activity. Oh, wow. Safe online. Now, this was the type of software that would take an IT expert about half a day to install on their, their enterprise server. But there was nothing else available, so that's when we said, oh, here's an opportunity. 
take our instant messaging monitoring software we built for business and focus it now on the parental home market. Completely re-engineered the product, went back to the drawing board, did everything all over again. We knew we needed a brand. And at the time, we said this brand, if parents are buying a product, the brand has to be something they're familiar with. We looked around and realized McGruff would be the great brand. Remember when you were growing up, McGruff could buy a crime, okay? We said, if we could get that brand. So we flew down to Washington, D.C. and talked to the National Crime Prevention Council. They own the McGruff brand and convinced them to give us exclusive digital rights at almost no cost. A lot of good negotiation, there was a lot of good sales. And then from that, we relaunched the product as McGruff Safeguard and it just took off with parents. That's awesome. You have to be good at pivoting. You have to be good at figuring out how to get people you're working with to work with you and want to do business with you and grow as you grow. And we were able to do that with McGruff. It's interesting. That same product, um, McGruff Safeguard, was also a way that we were able to do business with Dell. We had talked to distributors and partners and all these other entities to try to help grow our business. And no matter how many times I tried it, no matter, I couldn't get distributors to do what they were supposed to do, which was get my product into more people's hands. Right. They would make hundreds of promises. And if you try to work through a distributor or a partner, they're going to promise you everything and they're going to do nothing. Uh, we talked to Dell and HP for months, made no progress. Then we realized we need to treat Dell like a customer. Because if you can treat somebody like a customer, you can figure out a way to do business with them. So we knew that Dell at that time needed a way to distinguish themselves from all the other computer makers of Windows PCs. So it convinced Dell to make their computers safest for families. And we used our McGruff brand to do that. The brand that we were now had licensed to in the digital world. So here's how we turned Dell into a customer. Dell used McGruff to brand their computers as family safe. Dell paid us $1 for each box that shipped with our brand on the box. And we paid Dell that same dollar back to them to pre-install our trial software on the computer in that box. So it cost us nothing. Our, computer, our product was pre-installed on tens of thousands of computers of parents who had teens, and that led to thousands of sales. So you have to be thinking, what are the guerrilla tactics I can use to do business with the people I need to do business to with to grow my my company. Absolutely. You know, you made so many incredible points right there. And the first one I want to mention that, that stands out to me is that I feel that a lot of people don't do what you just mentioned, which is they weren't, they don't pay attention to what's actually happening with our product in the marketplace. Right. So like you said, we were about to shut this thing down because we just couldn't get the traction we wanted at the enterprise level, which is where we thought we needed to go. But you paid attention to the data. You looked at your metrics, you looked at a dashboard, you looked at something that told you, well, there's still some interest here. And then you actually probed and you explored. If you hadn't have done that, you never would have gotten that, that contract with Dell, would you? Not only would I have not gotten that contract with Dell, when you're so into the product you have, you say, I have enterprise software to do this. And even if one or two people are telling you that's not the right direction to go in, go into parental control, which I had heard over the prior months, you're still so focused on what you believe is the correct path, you don't listen. But when you kind of step back as you become more mature as an entrepreneur, you step back and say, let me kind of write down what everybody suggests and kind of reevaluate my business plan every few months to say, am I hitting the targets I want? One important lesson I've learned over the years is when you're running an experiment and everything when you're an entrepreneur is an experiment, 
write down what success and failure means because you need to know what's going to be success to keep going in the same direction and what's going to be failure meaning I'm not hitting my goals. Inevitably, you will end up in gray mm -hmm. because it's going to be somewhere between the two and your temptation is to throw good money after bad and not be able to say, well, it just, you'll end up saying it just needs a few more months, a few more months, a few more money. If you set goals ahead of time, then at least when you're at that decision, you can see how far from the goals you are and what's actually going to affect things. Yeah. And when you do that, you'll shut down things sooner that wouldn't go anywhere and you'll put good money in new directions that will go somewhere. Um, so the other thing that you have to learn how to do is figure out what are the early indicators before revenue? Is it the number of customers calling in? Is it the number of uh, clicks I get on the web? There are always early indicators that in 45 to 90 days will, in, will be revenue. If you can find what those early indicators are, it can help you track the business much more accurately. Absolutely. And going back to, you know, trying to get the money in for the company, you know, a lot of people are so focused on, I just need to raise money. But what you guys did is you said, listen, we, we figured out who our target market was. We had to make a switch. I'm sure that you had to put your flak jacket on and deal with some of the criticism from either friends and family or colleagues or employees or whatnot. So I'd love to ask about that. But what you really did is you found out that maybe I don't need to go out there and raise money. Maybe instead what I need to do is I need to pivot my marketplace a little bit so that I can show a potential partner who is willing to, I mean, even just getting that brand on your side, that had to have been a huge boost to your entire company, right? It was at every step of the way. We knew what we needed to be successful. We knew we needed a brand. We knew we needed a great product. We knew we needed distribution partners. Um, we want to get money. Um, and we were looking for money at that time. It just so happened that once we had the term sheet that made a lot of sense, Lehman Brothers crashed. So that term sheet kind of went away and we pivoted the company yet again and turned it into much, a much smaller venture that we eventually sold. But if, if you know what's needed to make a company successful, you'll figure out how to get there. And a lot of times you can do it without outside money. If you need techno, technology um, expertise, be it programmers or other type of people, there's enough very talented people out there who have jobs who would be willing to, in exchange for some founder's stock, put their moonlighting time into helping you be successful. If you can't convince people to put their time into your company to help you get to the goals you want, you can have a horrendous time trying to convince people to actually put money into it. Sure. Yeah, and can you tell me a little bit about that and dive a little bit deeper where, you know, let's say that I'm the founder of a new company and I just think, okay, all I need is $50,000 to get off the ground. And the first question that any savvy investor is gonna ask is, well, what's that $50,000 going to go towards and how is that going to turn into more money? Right. Yeah. And the first thing that people tell me is, well, I need to hire this. I need to hire that. I need to outsource this. I need to do this. But what you just said is if you can't just get somebody to give you a little bit of their time in exchange for maybe some equity in your company, what's the chance somebody's going to give you money? I mean, how important is that when you're starting out a company to find the right people before you find the money? You have to do two things, actually. First, you really need to understand what your personal goals are. So even if you can get people to work with you, if you don't know where you want to take this, you're just going to wander around aimlessly and make decisions that have nothing to do with the health of the company and the growth of the company. But once you say, okay, this is what specifically what I want to do. Here are my goals. Maybe your goal is to change the world. Maybe your goal is to pursue your passion. Hopefully your only goal isn't simply to make money because nobody's going to follow you in that path. But if your goal has some value to people they can see the goal individuals will see your passion 
and they'll follow your passion. And then once you get a team of people working with you, now your passion spread amongst four or five people with great ideas. When you're ready for the next step, you actually have a product that's demonstrable. Then you can go to investors and say, hey, this is great. Chances are the investors can say, well, who's actually using your product? Well, now you have to put it into people's hands and, and get great testimonials and get these people to say, yes, if, once this product is market ready, we will sign these contracts. Well, I would say go the next step, which is push it to the point where you actually almost have purchase orders. Now you can go to the investor and say, look, I have all these purchase orders for a product that I'm going to be delivering once I get a little more money to finish the development, which means we're over the hard stuff. Your money, Mr. Investor, is going to be used for ramping up our sales efforts and putting the final touches on it. Or, or Ms. Investor, your money is going to be to, to find 30 more companies, just like the five companies that already agreed to do business with me. That's awesome. Yeah, it is so important to, to actually have some sort of track record, some sort of a lead into why you should give us money, not just I have a great idea and I'm a cool person, right? So I think that's so important. Now, I want to flip it a little bit because you've been on both sides of the table, right? You've been the entrepreneur who's been out there hustling and uh, trying to grow your companies and bootstrapping. As the angel investor and as the mentor now, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, Marty, I have a great idea or a great company and I just need some help. What are some of the questions that you start asking these people or some of the things you start looking into before you even get to that conversation about money? The first thing I want to do is make sure that they have a passion for what they're doing, that they could see themselves doing this for the next five years. And the reason why they're doing it is because it's really important to them and to the people around them. If they have that, then the next question I'll ask is, do they have sales ability? Can they go up to somebody they've never met before and in, infuse their passion into that person? If they pass those two things, then they can probably be successful. Now, does the company have the right valuation for an investor to actually see a return? That's usually where a lot of deals fall apart because I could see how if they put their time and energy, they could grow this company into a two to $4 million lifestyle company that would turn out really well for them, but would not give a return for an angel investor. Um, some on the other hand have an idea that and are flexible enough that they might be able to take mentorship. A lot of people refuse to take mentorship and they won't listen to your ideas at all and they think they know where they're going. I was like that when I was uh, 27, 28 years old and somebody found me a mentor and I decided, no, I want to do it myself. Had I actually taken advice from that mentor, that eight, that eight year chapter of my life might have been a lot shorter and much more fruitful. But, you know, I learned the hard way. Live and learn, right? Twenty uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Exactly. So, you know, with that, can you tell me maybe some of the things that kind of formed and molded your character and what you learned today, and maybe some of the biggest lessons you've learned along the way that kind of helped you into the success you are now with Blindfold Games? And we'll go into that in just a minute. Yeah. Um, well, Blindfold Games is a hobby company that might turn into a, a full company. I'll get to that later. But what I learned is making sure you really understand what has to be done at every step of the way and be able to do everybody's job for them, whether that means uh, taking out the trash, uh, figuring out how to hire people, figuring out learning accounting, all the things that are really hard. If you don't know how to do it, you're going to have to figure out how to do it because you don't want to put in somebody in the, that role that you can't even evaluate, much less trust. So really you have to have a very wide knowledge of a lot of things. And then look for partners that can complement your skill set uh, that you trust with your life. 
and, and I've been fortunate enough to have one partner for about 35 years that we've done multiple ventures together and we always have each other's backs and, and a couple of other partners I've had long relationships with in business that are that have been very very fruitful for both of us and I try to learn from my partners because um, whether it's marketing or finance or sales, which, which were areas that are not previously my expertise, learning as much as they, I can absorb from them really made me a better entrepreneur. And the, in the same way, I would be using my time to be their partners and teaching them things that I did very well, be it you know, how to build a product and how to get a product to market and how to support customers. So what I heard then in, is that you had to put in the work, right? First and foremost, you gotta put in the work. And along the way, you learn some skills. And one of the biggest skills that I'm hearing, and you didn't say this word specifically, but you learn how to become a leader, right? You have to learn how to take all of that stuff, infuse passion into that, create a vision, rally people around that passion, that vision, and then somehow put a structure together to help everybody win, right? Is that kind of about, about right? That is true. You have to give off an electricity that people will buy into your vision. And you have to deal with a lot of criticism along the way. And while you're telling people how wonderful the thing is, you realize that you might be not make payroll the next month or, right. or two days and figure out how am I going to scramble to solve this one. Uh, I often, when I'm talking to um, groups of entrepreneurs that I'm mentoring or teaching at, at one of the innovation labs, uh, I'll say when you're an entrepreneur, it's like one foot on the, gra on the gas and one foot on the brake because yep. you don't know what's coming around the next uh, corner. You have to be very short-term focused, but you have to have a long-term vision. It's it's quite an adrenaline rush. It's very hard. It's hard to maintain a balance in your life when you do it, um, but it's worth the ride. Absolutely. So can you tell me what do you think has been one of the biggest contributors to your overall success over the years? Uh, focus. As long as you're focused, you can be successful. You, you have to get your focus more and more narrow achieve your short-term goals, and then start expanding it. Don't chase every bright, shiny object that you see. Right. Uh, in the education technology company that we did back in the 2000s, uh, we were selling to school districts. Now, our sweet spot was small and medium-sized school districts. So we said we have to prove out several things. One, we have to be the leader in at least two different states because each state needs a different type of product here. And we said we want to be the leader in two states, and from there we could grow. So if any proposal came across our desk that was not from one of these two states, Massachusetts and Texas, we would just walk away. And if any partnership had the idea that this will come to fruition sometime between six months and two years from now, we would just walk away because if it didn't help us in the next month or two, it was useless. We didn't know if we'd be in business in six months or two years. So it's maintaining a clear focus on our goals and maintaining a short-term focus of what's going to help the customer sell what we have and help customers we can, you know, we can really help. Yeah, so um, avoiding the shiny object syndrome, right? <laughs> being, able to, being able to actually say no. I mean, being able to say no, I think, is one of the hardest things that young entrepreneurs or, or startups or even some business owners face, which is opportunities, what appear to be opportunities, are coming in from every direction. But if you don't have that clear short-term focus, then you're just gonna accept everything and before you know it, you're just watered down too much, you're never gonna achieve those goals, right? Right, if you know exactly what you want to achieve and you have customers who will buy what you want to achieve, you focus on that and ignore everything else and then you'll be around another day, you'll be a larger company, you can go back and address larger opportunities. 
but really, in general, a, a small company should deal with other small companies or small divisions within a very large organization. But you know, deal with your peers, so to speak, and you'll get much further. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about where you are today and some of the things you're working on right now, Marty? Sure. So I had sold off two companies in uh, late 2016, early 2017. So as a hobby, I've been building audio games for blind people. Now, I stumbled into this because when my daughter was about 12 years old, she was writing up a new birthday wish list every day. And I, I every day come up a new list on this page. <laughs> I said, there should be an app for that. So I thought I could either create the app and focus test it with some of her friends or make this a STEM learning opportunity at the local her local middle school, uh, STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math. I contacted the head of school, and I said, I want to run an after-school club for about six weeks, three times a week for an hour. And she just loved the idea. So after I was fingerprinted and, and checked out, I ran the club. We created the app called Wish to List, which was in the App Store for a little while, and the kids loved it. At a, like most apps, it failed in the App Store. But the important thing was that the head of school came back to me and said, Marty, please run the app club again. And by the way, after you drop off your door to the mornings, can you teach the kids first period programming? I said, fine, I'll, I'll do that. I'm an involved parent. So we met with the kids again the second time in the, in the club, and the kids said, we want to build a game, not some stupid app. And I said, what kind of game do you want? Every game they came up with was like every other game in the app store. So let's do something that doesn't need the screen. The kids said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's make a driving game for blind people. Will you drive with your ears instead of your eyes? And using your iPhone like a steering wheel, if you drive too far to the left, the music's louder in your left ear. Too far to the right, the music's louder in your right ear. And you aim for noisy prizes like popping popcorn or avoid obstacles like barking dogs. Well, we built this game over about six months, a 35-level game where the kids and I designed the game in the club and then I would do the programming in the evenings. And then I finally got up enough guts to actually show it to some of those blind people, because at that point I hadn't met any. And we ran one Saturday at the Miami Lighthouse for Blind. We set the teen afternoon, staged about 15 iPads, had the local TV station come in. The teens loved the game. We put it into the App Store uh, the a couple of weeks later. I, I think at that meeting, one of the teens asked me, um, is the screen dark when I'm, when I'm playing? I said, yes. They said, well, you better make, put something on the screen of the iPad because when sighted people are playing this game, they'll think their iPad is broken. And then I tested with some other teens and this one girl who had been blind since birth was playing it and doing really well for about an hour. And then she comes up to me in the debriefing time and says, I am going to so beat the butt of my sighted friends. <laughs> blind people play this game so much better than sighted people because sighted people can't pay attention with their ears and mm -hmm. blind people are much more proficient at that as, as a developed skill. Uh, so I put in the app store, suddenly I start hearing from people all across the country, can you make me a solitaire game? Can you make a blackjack game? Can you make a flappy bird game? And every month or so, I, in my spare time, I create another game. And at this point now, I have about 20,000 game fans across the world who are visually impaired, and we've published about 80 games. That's now, awesome. recently, Yeah, recently, I've noticed a lot of teachers of visually impaired students and orientation mobility specialists are using some of these games to actually teach skills to uh, visually impaired students. So whether it's fine motor control or directions like clock directions, like what's a two o'clock, what's east, what's west, a bunch of these games require those skills to play the game so the teachers use the game to teach these skills. So we're actually looking into forming a company where 
uh, we can continue to provide the games, but really focus the games on education and helping kids out. That's awesome. That, that's incredible. I mean, it's really cool to hear that not only can you take a, a hobby and a passion and turn it into a business, which is fun, but it's also educational and it's serving a need in the marketplace that people are seeing is, is lacking out there. And, and uh, I'm, that's just incredible. I love hearing stuff like that, Mario. So congratulations. That's really cool. Thanks. I um, think I, I learned another lesson from that. And if you actually kind of look through the different businesses I've done, it was a very niche market, well-defined and easy to focus on. And how important has that been over the years for you? If you're in a niche, it helps set your priorities and you'll have less competition and you can really service the customer. Yeah. And you can expand from there, right? Like if you need to, you can expand, but you can't expand right off the, right out of the gate. Right. You can't aim at everybody and just with a wide shotgun. You have to really target what you want, achieve that, gain some credibility, and then move on. Awesome. Well, Marty, I have loved this time with you today. Thank you very much. Where can people go to learn more about you, learn more about Blindfold Games, and, what, and the stuff that you're working on? Sure. So uh, for Blindfold Games, there's a website called blindfoldgames.org, and they can follow on me on, on Twitter for Blindfold Games, at Blindfold Games. And then for me, um, I'm at martyschultz.net, and they can follow me at martyschultz111. Awesome. Well, again, thank you very much, Marty. I really do appreciate your time today. We've learned a lot about, you know, not only how to start a company, but how to persevere, how to get through a couple exits and some things like that. And then uh, how you can actually turn that around and become a mentor for, for new startups and turn your hobby and your passion into an actual business and help the world. So again, thank you very much for that. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And my journey has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. So thank everyone for watching and listening today. My name is Jeff Barnes with Angel Investors Network. We'll talk with you guys again next time. Take care. Thanks. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer.